Welcome to Women of Fortitude with Rondi Jane and Kelsey. This is a place where women share their stories to inspire other women. And also to remind all women that you are a woman of fortitude. Before you listen to today's episode, we think you should know that this episode will discuss a specific person's experiences with sexual abuse that could be upsetting or triggering. We are back with another episode with Rondi Jane and Kelty. Today we have a very special guest, a woman of fortitude. Her name is Candy Walker. That's Candy with a K. <laughs> she is from Saltilla. She is a very talented photographer and has an amazing story of overcoming lots in her life. And we're very honored to have you here today. Hi. Kelty and I both met Candy on this amazing retreat that we keep talking about. And I just want to say, like, we are not here to promote that. It just, we just know a lot of people from the walk to Emmaus. And, you know, (laughs) if you are interested in it, I mean, you want us to promote it, you just let us know and we'll get you hooked up and let you go. (laughs) But just there, you kind of learn that your story affects people, can affect people in such a positive way. And you just learn how to share your story and be open with it because that's what God has you here for, to use your story. And you never know who it's going to touch. So that's how we have met a lot of these people who are willing to share. So, Miss Candy. Thank you, ladies. It's an honor to be here. And I appreciate y'all having your podcast. I think it's brave of y'all to do that. So, I guess I will just jump right in. My name is Candy Walker. I live in Saltilla. I have a beautiful daughter. I have two of the cutest grandkids (laughs) ever, ever, ever in the whole wide world and a wonderful husband. My story, mainly, I just want to make sure that everyone understands that my story is to glorify God. And uh, I don't want to take the credit for it. Let's see. So on August the 7th in 1970, I was born. And the minute that I was born, that all the nurses, that they just stopped what they were doing and that they had to like tell everybody immediately to come and look because I was just so super cute and, <laughs> and everything. Maybe I don't really remember exactly what happened when I was born because, I mean... The only thing that I ever heard when I was growing up was that the only reason that I was born is because my biological mother quit taking her her um, birth control pills and was flushing them down the toilet, and that's the story that my biological dad always said. You know, people say stuff like that to you when you're a kid and stuff, but those things are not really that funny. You know, being mm-hmm. sarcastic and stuff like that, sarcasm is not funny. So you grow up hearing things like that. When I was born, I already had two older sisters. My parents divorced when I was three, and they both remarried pretty quick. My middle sister and I stayed in the custody of my biological mother and my stepfather. So I was three, she was five. My older sister, she went to live with my dad. The only happy memory that I really have of my childhood was that I had a German Shepherd. So when I was about three, I would put dresses on him, and I would make him walk on his back legs and dance with me. And I remember that being the best. His name was Brownie, and he was the best dog ever, like dancing and playing. After that, uh, nightmares. I started having nightmares when I was four, and I remember that it was cavemen that lived under my bed. And I remember that when I would go to sleep at night that the caveman would reach and start slapping my face and pulling my hair. And I had, for Christmas, 
And I've got Owen Mill pictures of me with this teddy bear, you know, the Owen Mill pictures. Mm -hmm. So that teddy bear was really big that I got for Christmas. And I'd place that teddy bear on the side of my bed that I slept on because my bed was pushed up against the wall to keep me safe. Even at night when I would get in the bed, like I would run and I'd jump, you know, I'd oh, yeah. jump in the bed. And, but the cavemen that were under my bed, you know, they'd grab at my feet and stuff. So I was a good jumper. But when I was four years old, I come to realize that that caveman was really my stepfather. He was coming into my room at night to molest me. You know, my stepfather took my innocence away. And, you know, it takes your childhood. The abuse started when I was four and it continued till I was 12. My biological mother knew that he was abusing both my sister and I, and she simply did nothing. So there is not a night in eight years that, it, that I lived in that home that I did not go to bed scared. I try all the time at night just to stay awake as long as I could. I remember laying in the bed and I would just pinch my arm at night so that I wouldn't go to sleep, so that I wouldn't be surprised. I just remember doing that. Um, so when that happens, you just feel damaged and broken. You know, there's not words for it when you're that young. And really, there's not words for it when you're older. But you survive. You just build up like an emotional survival wall. And really, somewhere in there, you're just broken. Like, you just really become numb. I was in fourth grade the first time that I attempted suicide. I didn't really know that I wanted to die. I just knew that I didn't want to live anymore. You just hurt so bad. You kind of walk around like you're drowning. That's the, the best way that I knew how to, to put it. Growing up in the South, my biological mom and my stepdad, they moved to Chicago. And so the only time that I really was ever in church was sometimes when I was at my dad's. But I went to church when I was um, 11. And I remember the, I remember being saved when I was 12. And I remember I was saved, like God met me right there. And I remember, you know, when the pastor asked me, he was like, do you believe that Jesus died for you? And it was like, yes, because I remember thinking that he died only for me. It was the best. When it was like, I remember going, can I go up there? Can I go up there? And it was like there was nothing that could have helped me in my seat. I remember when I left that day to go outside, it was like the sun was brighter than I ever saw, like the way that it, it touched my skin, you know? And I tell people that um, that was a day that I felt love like I never felt before, that God himself noticed me. I say at the age of 12, it wasn't that I was bad and I needed God to make me good. It was that I was dead and I needed God to make me alive. I didn't really stay in church and I didn't have anybody to disciple or anything and I went back to live with my mom. So I just kind of knew some of the uh, some of the commandments. So I remember right after that that I called my sister a horse's ass and I knew that I cussed. And so I really thought that God was done with me, like just done with me because that's how my biological dad acted like. I was scared to approach him, but if I did, that he was just going to be like, because he didn't ever want to have anything to do with me. So I felt like that that's what God was going to be. So after I, you know, felt like I had broke a commandment or a rule that he was done with me. And so honestly, I really don't know that I thought of God 
for, you know, for the next 20 years. Back to living with my biological mom and my stepdad and all of the abuse. I stayed grounded all the time because when you live in a home like that and there's all that abuse going on, even though I didn't do things wrong, they were always saying that like I didn't clean the house right or uh, a frying pan got, got scuffed up. But like they like to discount you in front of other people and mm -hmm. other adults saying that you're the problem child because if they can discount you in front of other people, then if you ever get brave enough to say they're doing this to me, they can say, oh, she's been a problem child, mm -hmm. but the problem's not yours. The problem's theirs. And so those are people that you need to be weary of in your life are those that discount problem children because mm -hmm. most of the time the problem is not the child's. Mm -hmm. Can I ask one thing? Yes. Because I remember... Um, Absolutely. I... I knew someone who kind of went through a similar situation and she was never allowed to spend the night anywhere. Yes. Where was, did you go through the same thing? Absolutely. I was either grounded or something was wrong with those families. It mm -hmm. was like, oh, I mean, you name it, they can make up some stuff. Like that family, I remember that one time I couldn't spend the night with this one girl because her parents had filed bankruptcy. I mean, um, that doesn't even make sense now. But to a child, it does. I mean, yeah, you know, you're scared to death. I mean, you yeah. don't know what that is. It just sounds bad. Yeah. yeah. I remember I would not be able to go anywhere with a school function because there was a girl that dated a black boy. I mean, so I, that mm -hmm. meant that I couldn't go anywhere with a group of 30 kids because there was one. I mean... Things get ridiculous, mm -hmm. you know? But then they would say, like, no matter what I did as far as cleaning the house, well, there was dust in a corner behind the dryer. I mm -hmm. mean, it was just always mm -hmm. something. Things that were not true. In their mind, like, they're trying to keep you close so that you don't go yes. tell anyone. Yes, because if you're able to make friends outside of the home, then you're going to trust somebody. Mm -hmm. This is what they did also. When I was in junior high school, I had, at the beginning of the year, my home ec teacher said she wanted us to write a short essay about, to let us know something about ourselves and, you know, just something simple. And for some reason, I worked up all the nerve that I had and I wrote that I was being abused at home. And I wrote, I wrote that my stepfather was abusing me, and then I wrote that my mother, I didn't use the word hypochondriac, but I used that, um, that something was wrong with her, and I put, it, I put it in my book, and I put it in another book, and I put it in my backpack for school the next day. And so the next morning, I got up, and I got ready for school. When I got ready for breakfast, I went in there, and my stepdad had already left for work, and my mother was in there. And on the table was laying that essay. She had already rewritten another essay, and it was sitting right beside it. And it was almost as if there were words were not even spoken. It was like I had to sit down and I had to copy that essay that she wrote in my own handwriting. And it was like it was almost as if she just. It was like I was just crying out as that four-year-old kid again. And she just muffled my mouth while he just abused me. I mean, that's that was the whole scenario of it to me. You know, but I look back now and I think that means that she went through my backpack every single night. Mm -hmm. You know, how sick is that? 
Because, you know, it wasn't so much, it wasn't just that my stepfather was abusing me. I mean, she just served me and my sister up on silver platters. You know, and these are things that you work out in your recovery also. Mm -hmm. After you get older and you start placing blame and, and, and seeing that none of it's your fault. Like, there's nothing that you could have done. You know, you couldn't have yelled loud enough. You couldn't mm -hmm. have stopped him. There's, there's just nothing that you could have done. You just... You look back and you just see the the evilness of it and the craziness yes. of it. Did she ever talk to you? Oh no, uh -uh. Mm -hmm. And t she she denied it up until the day she died that she even knew about it. Mm -hmm. I mean, also too when uh, I turned eleven, my stepfather started making me drink wine coolers because they felt that I needed to learn how to drink at home responsibly before I learned in the world. So it was almost as if, when I lived in Chicago, we lived in more of a community. It was like a trailer park, but it wasn't, these were nice trailer park communities with, you know, with sidewalks and swimming pools and stuff. And so it was more as if, like, they were trying to show me off as if their child, I don't even know how to explain it, but it was more of a, you know, like, they let me drive when I was only 13 as opposed to waiting until I was 15. Like, mm -hmm. that my child, their child was more mature than your mm -hmm. child. And But, yeah, like, I had to, I mean, I had to drink. You know, things like that are not always as they seem. You know, you wonder why I had a drinking problem later. And and then again, I mean, you know, who wouldn't want to... I mean, I thought it was cool. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't like I was gagging it down. Like, yeah. I was like, well, let me try this one. I mean, who wouldn't? You know, I'm drinking yeah. in front of my friends in junior high. Exactly. I mean, you know, just stuff like that. But in ninth grade, though, I got to the age of where I could decide if I wanted to live with my biological mom or my biological dad and then my dad and stepmoms she had a bunch of kids and so they didn't care nothing about nothing I had told them that I was being abused when I was young and they didn't do anything about it but when I got there there was so many kids that nobody noticed anything so I thought well I'm being abused there at my mom so I'll just go live with my dad and it'll get better well, it didn't because as soon as I moved there, my stepbrother started coming into my room and abusing me in the middle of the night. By then, you don't tell anybody because you just go from one evil to the next. And by the time you're used like that as a child, you just think that you're usable. Mm -hmm. And so you don't really do anything. Anyway, that went on for about two years. And then finally, he moved out. And you're so broken and numb by then. You're just angry. You're very angry. Mm -hmm. High school, uh, me, and, me and these other two girls, we picked this girl in junior high. There was no reason whatsoever. We just, she was smaller than us. She was quieter. And uh, we just picked her and bullied her. We got her in the junior high bathroom one time and just, I don't even know what we said, but um, we pushed on her some. And I remember I just slapped her across the face hard and I remember that it felt so good to be the one to hurt somebody else. I mean that's bullying. That is just pure evil right there. And from there I went from being the victim to the bully and I had so much anger in me and it hurt so bad for so long. And that's where the devil got me. He told me right there there was nobody else like me on earth that was that evil 
that was that bad and that there was nothing on earth that I could do to be forgiven for that right there. And so it was like that I'm worse than everybody. I mean, nothing. And so you know how like if you see on TV like when two kids are fighting and the uh, one brother's holding the other brother down and the brother's making the other brother hit himself mm -hmm. and he's like why are you hitting yourself why are mm -hmm. you hitting yourself i think you know the devil can't be everywhere at one time and i think well the devil didn't even have to bother me i was just laying in the corner hitting myself mm -hmm. like you know that's i mean that's what i did and it was like i'm done you know and it was like jesus had already died on the cross for that sin like you know but i didn't know it because I, I wasn't in a Bible, you know, I wasn't in church or, you know, I, I really didn't know that much. But, like, I really just thought that evil felt so good for me because I had been the one to be hurt. So, after that, um, I got pregnant in high school. I was 16. He was 22. That's illegal. But I had a beautiful daughter. Lord knows she saved my life. She's my best friend now. She gave me two beautiful grandkids. So then I was a single mom. You carry so much guilt and shame for just getting pregnant in high school. Nobody, I live with my dad and my stepmom. I woke them up when I was in labor. Like, they didn't even know, notice that I was pregnant. Like, no, I mean, how good is God that I had no medical treatment and gave birth to her and she was just super healthy but anyway so it was just me and her for so many years i got married that lasted less than two years there was god was not anywhere in that you're just trying to do what you can do you know i got divorced i worked two full-time jobs i slept three nights a week for two years mm -hmm. i mean you're just doing what you can you know and it's amazing what you can do when you got to do it I remember when I was a little, uh, in my early 20s, I had a boyfriend, and I remember he made a remark about my weight. I was a size 12, and he, he said something about my weight. So, you know, I thought, well, he must be smarter than everybody else because everybody's smarter than me. And so I started binging and purging anorexia for two years. Me and my daughter moved away. We lived on the Gulf Coast. That was probably the best thing that I ever did, though, was just move away from everybody from, you know, what you call family, mm -hmm. you know. And when you're not loved and you're neglected and you grow up being not loved and neglected, you don't know it. Mm -hmm. You don't know that your family doesn't like you. You don't know. I mean, we moved off. I have a grandmother who was amazing, who was the love of our life. But when you move off and you're gone for three and four years and nobody calls and checks on you but your grandmother... You don't know that that's not love. I mean, you just don't know. You know? And well, and uh, as a child, and this is what is your norm. Yeah. Is that, I mean, like, do you feel like that's normal for everybody? I mean, like, yeah. do you feel like that's what the world is like? That's yeah. just, that's just the way it is. You see and, families on TV, but you still, you're still just not like, why don't my parents call and check on me? Or, like, it still doesn't make yeah. sense. You know why? Because you're busy surviving. Yeah. You're busy putting food yeah. on the table. Like, it never occurred to me at Christmas, like, the, they don't send you Christmas cards. Or, or sarcasm. Or even, even when I moved home and I would go to a few of the family gatherings, I was always, like, the butt of the jokes of stuff or or you leave there and you, you're not happy. Like, you don't know what... And let me tell you, God will only give... No, God always gives you more than you can handle. But what I'm saying is, there are things 
that God will only give you in a small amount because you can only see things in a small mm -hmm. amount. Like he won't just crush your heart completely at times, you know, mm -hmm. to, to do things, you know, but it was like, or he will give you a new family mm -hmm. as he shows you the other people were not who you needed, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, I know people say family's everything, but they're not. They're not. You know, God will give you a new family. Because right. those people were not nice to me. Mm -hmm. And if they wanted to be talked about better, then they should have been nicer to me. Because mm -hmm. they mm -hmm. weren't. Mm -hmm. But that's okay. That's okay. Because it teaches me how I don't want to be. Right. Me and my daughter, we did fine. I had two bad marriages. Because you don't know. <laughs> you just don't know. You're just want, you're just looking for somebody to be loved, and uh, but until you find that love, you know the heart shape that we're all missing in here is for Jesus, and until Jesus feels that, then everything else that's the cake, and everything else is just icing. I had an affair with a married man, and he was going to leave his wife. And I mean, if a man loves you enough that he is going to leave his wife, I mean, you must be pretty special, you know? I mean, your thinking is warped, but everything else you're going through, it's like, ah. You know, I take full responsibility for the mistakes I made. Please, please let me make sure that you understand that. Please let me get that out there. But it was like, I was distorted. Uh, a friend of mine kept inviting me to church, and I was just like, whatever, whatever. But she didn't nag me, because you know how them Baptists are. <laughs> I'm just kidding, Methodists are too. Um, you know, but she was just nice about it, and then I saw that she was just doing stuff, and it was like, finally, you know, God was, it was just God wooing me. It was just God wooing me. I started going, and then I stayed at that church for a while, and then... I went to a different church. Because you don't have to stay in one place. Like, nothing good happens in your comfort zone. There's no adventure there. Get out and go new places and try new things for God. You know, and then before I knew it, like, I had me a new husband. And, like, we just celebrated, I think, 18 years. I mean, how does that happen? How does that happen <laughs> to a good godly man? Um, that puts up with me. That makes me laugh. The walk to Emmaus, you know, that was where one of the first places that I told God that I was mad as hell at him, that these things had happened to me where I first even told people that this did happen. You know what? Tell God you're mad as hell because you know what? He can take it. He wrestles with us. He wrestles with us. He can take it. It started a 15-year recovery process for me, and this is where I'm at, where I can tell you that he's amazing. You know, who you're around, you know, the friends that got me to the Emmaus, I think of um, Jesus was coming to a town to teach, and like the paralyzed man, you know, he couldn't get up and go by himself, and he just laid on his mat. And his friends are the ones that they couldn't even get him in the door. And so they went and they got on the roof and they cut through the roof and they lowered him through the roof. That was what my friends did for me for the Emmaus walk. I got in on a Thursday. I mean, a Wednesday. Who your friends are are everything. Mm -hmm. Everything. Your praying friends. Pray for your friends. Everybody pray for me constantly. You know, everything matters. Um... 
I always tell that story and I think of, my, of Emmaus and my friends. Because I, I was that paralyzed when I came out with this and started telling people and I had told that group of friends I was paralyzed, y'all. I thought I would never be anything more than just an abused victim at the age of 40. And to be able to talk about it, to tell you that there's healing in the name of Jesus, I laugh because it doesn't make sense. But let me just keep going. It just gets so much better, y'all. You just have no idea. Okay, look, the statistics are three out of five girls are abused by the time they're 16, 18. Uh, three out of five. So, you know, think of three. If you're a girl, think of five of your friends. You know, three of them are abused, you know? And with that being said, think of the abusers. Think of the people that are being abused. Mamas out there, trust your gut. Forget being nice and, and polite. Be disrespectful. Get away from my kids. Get away from my kids. Just do that. Just be... If a child tells you one time that they have been touched or abused or something is wrong, they're not going to tell you again. And just do something about it. If it's family, it's whatever, they're not going to tell you again. As a child, I was sexually abused by my stepfather for eight years. I sexually assaulted by different men in my childhood. Once in high school, my stepbrother for two years. There was a preacher at a Christian retreat because even as an adult, once you speak out that you've been abused, men will use that against you because once they say something or speak to you or tell you pedophile jokes and everything they're going to say is, oh, well, she's so touchy-feely. Uh, oh, you know, because pedophiles and people like that, birds of a feather flock together. Women, just, you know what, maybe your place to tell is to just tell somebody. You're not going to be, maybe you're not going to be someone who speaks out like me but your job might be to just pray for others don't put your abuse up against mine like my broke leg is the same as your broke pinky they're all the same abuse is abuse is abuse just things like that I've been working like I said on this for a long time I work steps of recovery when I say work steps of recovery though I don't want it to sound as if I did something wrong and I had to work steps of recovery Working recovery was more of placing blame where it needed to be. I had worked several step studies. I did a lot of Celebrate Recovery, and that is helps you place blame and stuff where I had done a, I had done a lot of step studies, and I was leaving one. I was leaving my third one, and it got to making amends. The girl that I had bullied, God actually... God actually brought her to celebrate recovery to me so that I could ask her forgiveness. And she had already forgiven me before I ever asked her to forgive me. God is so good. God will do anything for us, for his children. There's nothing that he will not do. When I was leading my third, my third step study, leading, not doing, but in leading, you are doing, it is to... Ask for forgiveness to forgive others, and it got to forgiving those that had hurt you. And I thought, well, my stepfather, and I was like, I did that. Like, I did that on my sofa one morning. Did it. That was it. Felt like that that was not going to be something that I was going to have to go and do. All that good stuff. I'd lived that out. 
If you don't know me, sometimes candy just does not think that the uh, rules apply to candy. <laughs> I don't know, like, sometimes, like, I have some stickers and stuff like that that just say, Jesus loves you, but candy's his favorite. <laughs> uh, I don't know why you girls are laughing so much, but I don't know. And I guess maybe somewhere in there that I thought that, um, I don't know, maybe my abuse was worse than other people's abuse or just because it was the sexual abuse as a child that maybe I was for. I guess I really just didn't think about it. I'd been by the house where the abuse was. You can go there and write a letter and write it off. I'd driven by the house. I didn't stop and do the letter. People lived there. But, like, I was good. I mean, it had been a couple years I'd gone through that. And uh, But on my sofa, sitting there, though, I saw that... My unforgiveness were the same nails that were holding Jesus on the cross as the abuse that was done to me. Because unforgiveness is unforgiveness. It's all the same. The world sees it as different, but you want me to go and make amends to my stepfather. It started eating away at me like a flesh-eating cancer. And if it didn't get out of me, I was going to claw it out with my fingernails. I had to do very little investigating and I found out that he and my biological mom were still alive and lived in another state over in Alabama about three hours away. So the planning began. I got my best friend lined up to go with me and we started planning our food, our snack itinerary, and our music playlist. I started praying and then I got, and then God made me wait for three weeks. Cause I wanted to go the next day. Like I, as soon as I found out that they lived in Alabama, like three hours away, I Google mapped it. I saw what their house looked like. Cause I didn't even know if they were still alive or not, you know, cause that wasn't none of my business. I mean, I done dealt with the, all that. So how um, long had it been since you had? 20, 20 years. 20 years. Yeah. 20, 25 years. Cause I'd already, you know, done it in my heart, done all that I need to, because it's like, to make amends unless it would hurt you or somebody else. And, like, I wasn't going to deal with that. Like, I didn't have to. So I thought. So, anyway, I wanted to go the next day, but I couldn't. And because things just, ugh, ugh, because God had better things. But, anyway, so I want to go the next day. But, anyway, so I was just sick. I wanted to rip the Band-Aid off. I was afraid I would talk myself out of it to get this junk over with. I could not even say what I was going to go do to ask for prayer. I was four years old again, and God was with me, but for those three weeks, even when I told my best friend, my best friend was a girl that I was actually her um, sponsor, and she was a girl that I sponsored that I met in jail when I was doing jail ministry. When you do jail ministry... You're the only one who gets the blessing out of that. I remember because I saw her. She, she, she was the first person that I ever heard say that she forgave the person who sexually abused her. I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> you, you do what? <laughs> I couldn't even ask my pastor to pray for me because I couldn't say the words in that three weeks. Of what God was making me go do. I could only tell Misty. And, and Misty, I just said, I need you. 
But I did the math, and my stepfather then was about 90 years old. So I thought, well, I can take him out if I need to. <laughs> I thought, he, I knew that him and my biological mom were, were about that age. And then I Google mapped it so you could see their house, and I could see that there was a double-wide trailer. I could see everything. So I was playing it over in my head. It was a three-hour trip. And so I remember I was like, okay. I thought if I go all this way, this is what's going to happen, blah, blah, blah. And I mean, because it consumed me. I remember I thought, okay, I'm going to go to the door. When I knock on the door, like if they see me, they may not let me in. And I remember I was like, when they open the door, I'm just going to like force my way in. Like, and go on in. I mean, I had it imagined that it's going to be this breakfast table and what time of day and like and everything. And all. I remember I said, I'm just going to force my way in so I can go in and like, because I ain't going back. Like, I, th this is one and done, God. Like, I mean, I didn't really feel like I was even talking to God. I was just planning it because I'm going to walk in and I'm going to say my this and then I'm going to walk out. And I remember when I thought about pushing my way in through and all. God stopped me. I was sitting on my sofa in the same place. That's where I do all my morning time. And God said, no, you won't. He said, you will not bully your way in and represent me as a bully. He said, you, forgiving him, is representing me, Jesus, as skin. And you will not represent me as a bully. You may be the only skin, Jesus, in flesh that he ever meets in life. And you cannot do it by forcing your way in. I'm a gentleman and I always knock and ask to be invited in. And I was like, oh. <laughs> so I had to wait a few more days. And I thought it ain't even about me. Like it was so much bigger than me. So I repented and I cried and lamented. And I began to pray and God he showed me freely what he had in store for me. He began to show me that it was way beyond anything I could imagine. And it would be two and a half more weeks before I could actually face my stepfather. And in that time, God showed me that I had indifference in my heart. It wasn't total forgiveness. It was more that I just didn't care. That bitterness, that bitterness in my heart had settled and changed to indifference. But better than that, he showed me that maybe if I could forgive, if I could show my stepfather forgiveness for the things that he had done to me, then maybe he could begin to see and understand how Jesus could also forgive him. My opportunity to be Jesus in skin here on earth is just to just another hurting soul. But it had to be real. You can't fake it with God, and that's a beautiful thing, because I can fake it with all of y'all. And that's exhausting and scary. I've grown closer to God. And now I just snuggle in closer and I lay it all out. So on April the 9th, 2019, I went up and knocked on the door of my stepfather's house. The man who sexually abused me for eight years, beginning at the age of four. The man who stole my childhood. I looked him straight in the face and I told him that he abused me as a child. That it was sexual and violent and it ruined parts of my life. I told him that I forgave him, and then I asked him to forgive me for the bitterness in my heart that I had carried for all these years. He said that he did, that he forgave me. I said, thank you, and I walked out. The Lord's Prayer says, forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. 
Our step nine of recovery says we may direct amends to such people whenever possible, except, except when to do so would injure them or others. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Matthew 5, 23 through 24. Forgiveness is our superpower. All of this is God's breathtaking, never-ending, reckless pursuing love for his children, both for my stepfather and for I. Matthew 5, 8 says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I want to see God. I want to see God. Genesis 50, 20 says, this is Joseph. He says to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. I feel like that's what I say to my stepfather. You intended to harm me, which is the devil. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God is supernatural. God is he is the God of impossible. I don't need a little G God of possible because I can do the possible myself. He is way more than I can imagine. My life had to have a supernatural God because I tried everything here on earth to find what only God can satisfy. I believe that God has a higher purpose for my recovery than just me. He has shown me glimpses of, of what he has already for me, and I believe that he has a higher purpose for your recovery than just for you, those hearing this. He has a much bigger plan for each of us than I can ever imagine. Ephesians 3, 20 through 21 of the message says, God can do anything you know, far more than you can ever imagine, guess, or request in your wildest dreams. He does it not by pushing us around, but by working within us, his spirit deeply and gently within us. I told you about God bringing the girl to CR so that back to celebrate recovery so I could ask her for her forgiveness and make amends. And that was just God already using the bad for his good. I always want to make sure that people do not think that I have it together because I am a soup sandwich. Do y'all hear me? I always say even if I had it together, I'd forget where I put it. <laughs> but every day I get up, the first thing that I always do is pray before I get out of bed. I have almost eight years of not smoking. I gave that to God. I just want him to have the, the glory for all of it. But you know, I didn't give him the smoking. I gave him the desire mm -hmm. of smoking. Because there will be smoking in heaven. I just know there will be. Because I loved it so much. <laughs> so many things that I want to say about, you know, read your Bible. You know, you're going to get, I heard a lady tell me one time, she said, what if you get to heaven? And he says, did you read my book? Are you really going to say I didn't have time? Every day though, you know, the Bible is the best book ever. If you think the Bible's boring, you're boring. <laughs> Just inspire each other. Tell somebody. Talk about it. Talk about what you're hearing now just in conversation. Open, open the conversation so that the children will know that it's not their fault. Quit not talking about it. Quit not talking about it. If the kids say it, they're like, oh, well, they'll say it again. No, no, they're not going to say it again. You know, 
there are good people out there that want to help. You know, they say that um, abusers abuse like 112 times before they're caught. You can do something. Just pray for me. Just, you know, mm -hmm. if nothing else, every morning, just, you know, the best thing you can do is just pray for the survivors. Pray for, you know, I remember, I remember um, about 10 years ago, a lady told me, she said, you know, one day you will be candy and not just a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. I was like, no, I won't. I'll, like, I'll just always be, that'll always be me. But like now, like, it's just something that happened to me. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that makes sense to y'all, but it's huge, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, I still struggle daily. I, I struggle with anxiety and depression, and those are things that are not going to go away without work. I still have to keep myself very, very specifically around good, happy people, people that inspire me. I stay off social media. Mm -hmm. I don't compare myself with other people. If I catch myself being jealous, I work against that. I, I realize that I'm not jealous of them, that that's the enemy messing with me. Then I turn that around and use it against him and compliment other people and or compliment that person. And, mm -hmm. you know, these are things you've got to... You know, you can't sit around and let life happen. Those are things that you can't do. Every day is hard for me. And to have joy, it doesn't just tap. Well, I don't know, though. When you've got Jesus in you, Jesus is bigger mm -hmm. than you. So Jesus is flowing out everywhere. But I am a joyful person, and God put me on this earth to be a, an encourager. I'm going to slap you with some happy. <laughs> and um, I can't help it. You know, that's who I am. I was just thinking, we all have spiritual gifts, and I truly believe joy is your spiritual <laughs> gift. It is. Because I, I remember meeting you on the walk, and like you were just always smiling, always happy, always bubbling, telling jokes, had me laughing, and like never would have known that's what you've been through. And I always remember a quote, I learned it in high school, this lady did a testimony or something at church and she used this quote it's not about where you've been but where you're going and I just I've always hung on to that and I've used that you know I I was I wound up um pregnant at 17 as well and so I kept it with me there and then everything I've gone through and that's kind of how I relate to it how you're saying that's just where I've been yeah that's not where I'm yeah. going yeah like we're going to a greater place yeah Yes, joy is my yes. favorite word. Yes, well, yes. thank you for sharing your joy. Yes. I, I love it. You're definitely an inspiration. Today's episode is sponsored by Massage by Kelty. Kelty Childs is a licensed massage therapist number 1511. Special thanks to our editor and producer, Daniel Rogers, and thanks to our musician, Brantley Rogers. If you love our podcast, like and rate us wherever you listen to our podcast. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram under Women of Fortitude. Thank you.